0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Welcome. I am Michaela Novak, Senior Fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Philosophy, Politics and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. The podcast episode today represents the last of a three-part mini-series on civil society, encompassing the practical nature of voluntary mutual assistance outside, but entangled with the domains of market and state, and the theoretical dimensions of civil society, to help us better understand group cooperation and social coordination. The concept of civil society has long held an esteemed position within classical liberal thought, eliciting not only scholarly attention, but, as we will show during this mini-series, practical efforts of direct help and support for and within diverse communities. It is my great pleasure today to speak to Paul Dragos Alagiga, Paul Alajica is a senior research fellow and senior fellow at the FA Hayek program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics and Economics at the McCatus Center at George Mason University. He is also KPMG Professor of Governance at the University of Bucharest and an affiliated researcher with the Ed Snyder Center, Robert H. Smith School of Business, at the University of Maryland, College Park. Aladjika specializes in institutional theory, public choice, social change, and Austrian economics, and has research backgrounds in economics, sociology, and political science. Of significance is Paul's interdisciplinary orientation, united by an underlying interest in institutional diversity, alternative economic and governance systems, and the theory of social thinking about the future, the possible and the feasible, all with a view to their practical and normative implications. Paul has uh, authored several books. Some of his prominent works include Public Governance and the Classical Liberal Perspective, Public Entrepreneurship, Citizenship and Self-Governance, and Institutional Diversity and Political Economy, The Ostroms, and beyond. Paul is a prolific contributor to academic journals, including Journal of Economic Behavior Organization, Public Choice, American Political Science Review, Constitutional Political Economy, and Society, and has contributed to popular outlets such as Wall Street Journal Europe and Reason Magazine. Paul has been a consultant for the United Nations Development Programme, the World Bank, European Union Organisations and the United States Agency for International Development, USAID. During the 1990s and 2000s, he was associated with the Romanian pro-Western, pro-democracy liberal movement, including as a founder and coordinator of several national level political and civil society organisational initiatives. alagika received his PhD in political science from Indiana University Bloomington. So Professor alagika is an original thinker on questions of civil societal dynamics and comparative institutional analysis and has complemented scholarly thought with practical action for a freer society his latest book with simona pedra entitled the institutionalization of indoctrinization is a testimony to the first straight caliber of his intellectual insights and productivity paul it is a great pleasure to have you on this mini series edition about civil society welcome to the Hayek program podcast Thank you, Mikhail. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to engage in this conversation uh, with you. Thank you very much. So we'll uh, start off with uh, some uh, sort of background illumination for listeners. So the first question I have for you is, what instigated your own interest in civil society and its diverse organizational forms? Were there any noteworthy experiences Insights or knowledge gained through your life and career that inspired you to engage in in depth studies of nonprofits and other alternatives to for profit organizational forms?
2: Yeah, I think that this is a question which is um, setting up the stage for our conversation very well because it allows, um, obviously, uh, for me to outline the two directions I'm coming from in engaging with the topics on the table uh, currently in this uh, conversation i'm going to start with the first one which is uh, a purely intellectual academic nature i had the chance to work um, as we'll talk later in our conversation with two of the most prominent scholars dealing with issues related to the neither markets nor state sector. And um, I'm talking here about Eleanor Ostrom, Nobel Prize uh, in uh, Economics, the first actually woman got a um, Nobel Prize in Economics, and Vincent Ostrom at Indiana University Bloomington. So as their student, And part of being trained in that tradition was supposed to look at institutional diversity. Institutional diversity, which means organizational forms and social forms of association, which are different from the market and different from the state. Uh, So sooner or later, you start to explore, and exploring this variety, you start to look at um, what is called voluntary sector, or the third sector, or the non-profit sector, Uh, and um, Obviously, you start to understand better the distinctions between the various facets of this uh, phenomenon. And obviously, one of the ways in which uh, this very complex, uh, heterogeneous, actually, set of uh, social phenomena uh, is known, uh, uh, so one of the concepts used is civil society. So, this is the, so to speak, intellectual context or academic context or even may say the career context. The second one is that I am originally from Eastern Europe. This is a Romanian accent. So I grew up during the communist uh, regime. Uh, And uh, I was involved in various uh, ways in the transition from communism. And I had firsthand the opportunity to be involved in what actually later was called in the 90s the civil society sector in the 80s in Eastern Europe. And I understood from inside, so to speak, the relationship between a totalitarian regime and the nature of the civil society, voluntary association, or anyway intermediate associations between the individual and uh, the state, in this case, the totalitarian state. And also I had the opportunity to understand by being directly involved in the growth of a post-communist transformation of the society. And what, again, broadly defined is called civil society had an important role. So when you put these things together, uh, you understand that uh, I, uh, I was in a sense destined to Get involved in the more substantive analytical uh, effort to better understand the nature of uh, civil society and the variety of institutional organizational forms that we're associating with it.
1: Yes. So there's essentially a a very sort of practical uh, orientation and also the theoretical orientation, which you gleaned from Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom, which provided you with a a very unique sort of blending really of uh, the practical and intellectual. So uh, thank you uh, very much. So from that, I would want to ask to what extent have the key tenets of classical liberalism, including that of free association, as well as voluntaristic forms of collective action to resolve social problems or of mainline economics, which keeps to the same commitments as philosophical liberalism. How have all of these things motivated your own work?
2: As I have mentioned, I grew up during the communist regime, so I I am entering the stage of academic discourses and uh, the stage of public policy with a strong bias in favor of human uh, freedom when confronted with totalitarian structures, but not only, with uh, authoritarian structures. And uh, so I take it as a sort of uh, prior sort of bias that I have, given my background and given my experience. And that background, that experience has set me up in such a way as to be very, very open to classical liberal uh, ideas. Now, I take the classical liberal intellectual tradition seriously in the sense that I understand the contribution that the classical liberals have made in the last several hundred years to the modern liberal, what we call modern liberal democratic capitalistic system. And the uh, I take that seriously because I think that I understand what are the alternatives to that. So this is uh, one important um, way in which I uh, think that I connect the things that I'm doing and even my understanding, as you have mentioned, of the third sector, of the voluntary sector, of the civil society. I connect it with the classical liberal tradition and I'm sure that we'll have the chance to talk more about that uh, as we advance in our conversation. There is a second reason. I mean, I mentioned to you... Uh, past oriented reason my background the history of the classical liberal ideas and and, uh, and uh, the ways in which i think given my priors that they are important for governance systems and public policy uh, so the second reason is future oriented i see a lot of challenges currently emerging precisely on uh, in the area in which we thought that uh, actually things were settled which means human freedom. And uh, the new technological, the new governance, the new institutional, cultural, political, geopolitical trends, I don't think that they are uh, favorable so much uh, to the principles that we associate with classical liberals. But let's forget about classical liberals, let's forget about labels. We're talking here about basic uh, human freedoms. So I think that we have to engage again with the classical liberal um, tradition in order to be able to recalibrate our approaches to these challenges we need to rethink our understanding of the classical liberal tradition in the context of the 21st century so this is another source which is motivating me to think on these lines and in this context the third sector the social civil society the voluntary sector the non-profit sector The institutional diversity between markets and states is extremely important, I think, in the larger scheme of things. Uh, It's very important in the ways we are going to respond to these future challenges. I, I mean, I say in future challenges, but actually there are contemporary current challenges which are unfolding as we speak.
1: Yes, I, I definitely uh, happen to agree with those uh, sentiments and some of the uh, the key issues about uh, comparative institutional analysis as it pertains to a comparison of uh, civil societies and within different political systems as is one issue we'll address later on and also the, the very important questions about uh, sort of freedom for uh, civil societal action in, in the future. So, um, so now we'll turn to thinking about some of the, the the key theoretical principles which underpin contemporary understandings of civil society and key among those is a concept you're very familiar with and that is of polycentricity so could you be able to please explain for our listeners the concept of polycentricity which certainly represents an esteemed concept and indeed value within the classical liberal philosophical firmament. How do polycentric structures of human activity underpin a robust civil society?
2: This is, uh, in the context of our conversation, this is a step, uh, as you have mentioned, in the direction of uh, better conceptualising the classical liberal tradition. And obviously, this is part of our uh, attempt to recalibrate that classical liberal tradition to the current challenges. Now, there are many ways in which he could elaborate the concept of polycentricity, some of them rather technical in the literature. But I would like to make a reference to something which is well known, which is the concept of checks and balances, or the concept of countervailing powers, or the concept uh, of uh, separation of powers, So these are concepts which are coming from the classical liberal tradition, and they are operational ways of solving social dilemmas regarding the concentration of power and the capabilities that um, human societies, individuals, communities have to counter and create countervailing systems in which power is checked with power, ambition with ambition. So polycentricity is a more, let's say, 20th century, 21st century way of reframing in a more, uh, let's say, updated technical terms, the basic initial insights of the classical liberal uh, tradition. It's easier to create spaces for human freedom if there is no huge concentration of power in a system. It's easier to correct errors if you don't put all the eggs in one basket. You have multiple places which are experimenting with a variety of ways of organizing, and there is cooperation uh, between those. There is some competition between those uh, multiple centers of decision-making and organizing, but which together are exploring the frontier of possibilities of organizational, economic, political arrangements, and managing time through evolutionary process to select those which are better in terms of efficiency, in terms of freedom, in terms of equality, and so on and so forth, you could do that in a polycentric system. You cannot do that in a monocentric system. Also, and give you an, an another example: when you have one single monocentric structure, let's say a very, very hierarchical, centralized national state, you have only one budget, and that budget is distributed to all the communities for all kind of public goods and services that those communities may want to have uh, financed. Think of the tension with concentration, the entire tension there when at the, let's say, regional level, local level, municipal level, sooner or later you have to go to the central budget in order to distribute the uh, needed resources. So in this respect, polycentricity means Uh, what we know from both uh, the federalist theory and the subsidiarity theory, a sort of decentralization of decision-making and allocation of the resources at specific levels in function of the local, municipal, regional, collective goods and services which are supposed to be provided there and therefore should make a connection between the taxes and the services at the appropriate level but even beyond the f- fiscal or financial aspects we have to think at the very idea of diffusing social conflict and competition as opposed to, com- uh, to, to 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 concentrated everything around one budget at one level at the center we disperse that and we diffuse the tensions by making a clearer and then more straight correlation between the level where the taxes are collected, and uh, the kind of public goods and services which are produced, distributed, and uh, consumed. So this is another example of the ways we think in terms of polycentricity. But you could see that this is, again, an idea which we know from federalist and subsidiarity literature decentralization literature so there is a continuity between polycentricity and the new theories of polycentricity and the traditions of separation of power checks and balances and uh, the classical liberal tradition that you have mentioned earlier.
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I think what's um, particularly notable in your remarks, Paul, is uh, your reference to the notion of countervailing power. Now, when, uh, as I was uh, educator in my undergraduate years in the early uh, 1990s, uh, we were given multiple texts by a uh, Canadian economist, John Kenneth Galbraith, who spoke of countervailing powers but uh, sort of advocated the use of uh, state coercive power uh, as a somehow of a countervailing means to uh, control what he perceived as the excesses of of the markets. Now, certainly uh, subsequent developments in public choice in the Virginia School political economy, um, in particular, the the contributions of the Bloomington School would pose as a, a significant critique of the Galbraithian position. Certainly the uh, the austrian view that there is actually a, a sort of a triplanner uh sort of ecology within our civil society there's not only markets and states involved but there's also civil society but going even further in the, the in a polycentric spirit that um, the these uh, you know triplanet entities uh, are actually uh, uh, housing multiple uh, organizations, a rich ecology within, which really does emphasize the the distributed uh, modes of influence, decision making, and ultimately power, which I think is the real value, especially provided by the by the Ostroms and by mainline political economy in general. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, just one, um, one reference
2: to Galbraith and the idea of countervailing power coming from the state. The polycentricity literature and the Ostroms do not oppose that idea. In some circumstances, it is necessary that the powers of the state to count, be a countervailing power to either the powers of our, our other states or to powers of, uh, let's say, uh, factors from the private sector. It might be the case, but those cases, they shouldn't be assumed by definition. To give you an example, so about this very interesting situation regarding the nature of the state power. Because again, this is not a dogmatic issue. So that's that's the point here: that this is not dogmatic thinking. We are always complaining. Uh, so we were always complaining in the, not only in the classical liberal tradition, but in general about the disappearance of the intermediate institutions between the state and the individual. And there is a large literature uh, deploring the disappearing uh, disappearance of these institutions, in- individuals are weaker when confronted to the naked power of the state because they are missing the protection given by those intermediate institutions. But nowadays, we are witnessing the emergence of supranational superstructures of power, like the European Union, and it's called Brussels. Now, the question is, is the power of the national state going to play a positive or a negative role in the checks and balances system? And I'm inclined to say that uh, it is important to have the national states retaining sufficient power so to be able to function in countervailing measures to the power of um, centralizing force like Brussels, or for that matter, to the powers of uh, corporate world. Again, it's not about taking an ideological position. It's just taking a sort of pragmatic understanding of what it takes in order to create and preserve the spheres of human freedom and of human initiative. And it looks like that the best fundamental structural approach. Is to assure that power is checked by power ambition is checked by ambition other than that you are left at the mercy of simply preaching to the people or trying indoctrination campaigns you have mentioned my book on indoctrination so indoctrination is a strategy which tries to manipulate to shape to 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 redefine human preferences their views there in which institutions are playing a different role from the role that the institutions are playing in the governance mechanisms that I have mentioned earlier, which are the checks and balances, incentives to action, given based on the structure of um, institutions and organizations.
1: Thank you. Um, So uh, the intellectual contributions of Vincent and Eleanor Ostrom deeply and practically inspired your thinking as you've outlined. So to what extent does your work engage with their normative insight that effective self-governance within civil society requires a modicum of associational and democratic competence on the part of individuals seeking to work collectively. I'm wondering if you could briefly outline what you see as the significance of citizenship uh, underpinned, I should say, by free association in the modern world. Yeah, so so a couple of very
2: interesting possible directions uh, you just put on the table. So the first one is uh, the issue of self-governance. Vincent and Eleanor Ostrom, their scholarship, their research program is about self-governance. So this is what has motivated their research. And usually people know Eleanor Ostrom's work from the work uh, on governing the commons. And many people are missing, actually, that governing the commons is just one branch of a, uh, so to speak, tree. And the roots of that tree, which is the research program, are um, actually related to precisely this issue, self-governance. Are people able to create structures of governance in which they could generate what we call maybe democracy? But again, it's not the label is important, but the properties of those governance systems. And the Ostroms were in search of the properties of the governance systems in which individuals as sovereigns, citizen sovereign, could self-govern their affairs. So this is where, and and this is how they come at one point, or more precisely, Elinor Ostrom comes at one point in her career to focus on the commons, governing the commons, governance of the commons. The idea being that mainstream literature was predicating, based on some more game theoretical models, that people are unable to solve the commons dilemma or dilemmas. And uh, Ostrom has demonstrated that actually people are able to do that kind of thing. So it was a demonstration of a self-governance potential in a situation of social dilemma, the commons or common pool resources, as a contribution to a long demonstration of uh, the idea that self-governance is possible. Now, what is the role of citizenship or of the citizen? First of all, obviously, because it is about the citizen, it's about the sovereign of the system, and we could talk about the normative individualist idea, which is behind this entire approach and behind the classical liberal tradition, which says that in the end, the governance system should be derived from the preferences, the views, right, of the and the values of the individual citizens. So... It's an interesting proposition, obviously, that the individuals are able to create their own structures of governments to self-impose rules and, 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 um, and laws on their own behavior. And... But the idea is, again, that the citizen is central. The citizen has a sovereign, the ultimate source of legitimacy, authority, and decision-making in the system. But again, in this type of approach, you're looking at the institutional structure. All kinds of institutional structures connected by various principles. We have discussed about the checks and balances because it's so central to the concept of polycentricity. So you have an institutional um, architecture. Institutional architecture may be seen as a social technology, sophisticated social technology for coordinating people, solving collective action problems, dilemmas, uh, and so on and so forth. The question is, are people able to operate those sophisticated machines? Do they need a sort of competence in order to do that? And this is where the discussion about citizenship and, uh, and civics uh, enters the, the, the conversation. Because the Ostrom's idea, and in general, the classical liberal idea was that you need some capabilities, let's call them virtues, or ability to operate some uh, operational codes of those institutions. So there is a little bit of a tension in this tradition whether or not those institutions should be thought as being functional just based on the pure self-preserving interests of the individuals or they need some additional virtues. But I think that things are pretty clear that you need some additional virtues or virtues some additional competence in order to operate those institutions. So this is where your question of uh, citizenship and uh, of civics and the capability of people to understand the nature of those institutions and to understand how things should be operated within those institutions uh, becomes very important.
1: Thank you. So let's now uh, turn our minds uh, briefly to the congregations of associations and other structures that enable citizens to exercise self-governing capacity. So uh, I'll draw uh, the attention of listeners to uh, several papers of yours, including in the Review of Austrian Economics, which was co-authored with Richard Wagner. And you set out in that particular paper I mentioned, the RAE paper, you set out a critique of the mainstream or neoclassical economic interpretation of non-profit and voluntary organizations. Now, these may be charitable and also sort of foundational organizations as well. I'm wondering if you could uh, please outline some of the, the basic principles of your mainline interpretation of nonprofits and voluntaristic organizations—how they operate and how they contrast with the the mainstream or the neoclassical view, which maintains, I think, an analytical habit of identifying so-called nonprofit failures everywhere and always. Yeah, that's an excellent question. It helps us to make
2: uh, yet another step further in the direction of understanding uh, the complexity of this sector that uh, we broadly labeled as civil society or the third sector. And obviously, the first thing that should be said is that this sector is very heterogeneous in, in, in its nature. That being said, there are two ways of approaching it at a very general level. And I have already made the gestures in that direction, where you think that there are actually two major sectors, the market and the state, right, the public and the private. And then there is this mi- mixture in between the third sector which uh, this uh, third sector is a sort of a second best in comparison with the other two. And then you go at a sort of um, lower level of analysis, organizational analysis or micro analysis, in which you are showing more specifically how the various institutions of the third sector are diverging from the ideals of the private institutions of the market, like the firm, or... The institutions of the public sector, out of which the most preeminent is obviously the national state. And as a result of that, you get this picture of the third sector. Again, it's, it's a, a big label uh, of all the, of the civil society organizations and institutions and been very imperfect. They are always, as I have mentioned, second best uh, uh, ways of organizing things which could be organized better by the state or by the private firms, but that is not happening for some reason and therefore we have to settle with this very imperfect way of doing things. So our position in that paper, and in general, the position on the third sector is that this is a sector which has its own functioning, its structure, its logic, and therefore we should be trying to understand all those in their own terms. Not like a sort of residual or like a sort of uh, second best formulation of the perfect technical solutions given by the theory of the state or hierarchical command and control organization or the theories of the market and the firms operating within a competitive uh, market. So this is in a nutshell, the very idea that in order to understand a non-profit organization, we have to start with trying to capture the logic of a non-profit organization. The dynamics, the structure, the functioning of those in their own terms. Obviously we use the same theoretical apparatus, the political economy or institutional theory that we are using for the markets and for the states. But uh, we should avoid the sort of analytical or normative uh, yeah. attitude, which is trying to reduce everything to do to those two models, the um, Ostrom said, the Leviathan and the Invisible's Hand, uh, and try to understand in their own terms the, 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 the diversity of organizations and organizational forms, which are neither markets nor states. They might have properties belonging to both, but they are not perfect in terms of their organization on the line, aligning perfectly on the lines of the pure market or the pure state uh, structure. So this is in a nutshell that, uh, that position and has a lot of consequences, as you may uh, as you may see. There are a lot of uh, consequences which are unfolding as a result of taking that kind of uh, position. All of a sudden, it's an entire continent of, uh, of institutional forms that need to be understood in their own terms And uh, obviously, again, you are using the standard of efficiency or the standards of um, authority or efficacy from the other theories. But uh, you have to do that in the terms specific to the reality you are studying. It's a sort of also, um, if you want, a sort of Aristotelian idea that we have to adjust our method
1: and approach to the nature of the reality that we are trying to describe and analyze. Thank you. I think that is actually is an incredibly important point that you uh, make, Paul, to to analyse uh, the the constellation of the so called third sector or civil societal uh, entities in. On their own rights, on their own and then in their own terms. Uh, so for example, to understand uh, some of the ways in which the the, so the operational, the organizational, even the normative logics within the third sector can give rise. Uh, to varied sort of forms of virtues and excellence. For example, let's say through the acquisition or generation of uh, reputational capital—that uh, is, you know, being a, being a uh, an excellent nonprofit organization that delivers outcomes for the needy, for example—and uh, also uh, the development of social capital for associations to be able to uh, to study. That kind of phenomena on its own terms, in its own right, I I think that's an excellent point that you make and I thank you for it. So let's turn uh, now to sort of another topical area that is sort of subject to your more sort of recent research investigations, and that is uh, situating civil society, uh, the polycentric order at large within a diverse and changing world. So uh, this emphasis of your research agenda, at least as I read it, on the importance of value heterogeneity and diversity diversity, more broadly seems actually quite crucial towards uh, garnering a better understanding of the extraordinary depth of social dynamism that we experience today. Now, this dynamism is valorized in some quarters, it's heavily critiqued in others, but nonetheless, putting those aside, for a mainline political economist, for someone like you, versed in the Bloomington School of Political Economy in particular, why is diversity and heterogeneity important? Why do these things matter?
2: Yes, we have already touched a little bit on the issue of diversity and originating. We're talking about institutional diversity, right? So it's not just we have the structures, institutional structures that we're associating with the market or the institutional structures that we're associating with the state, but we have a wide range of institutional arrangements. Where are those institutional arrangements coming from, uh, their diversity? Well, it's coming uh, from the fact that on the one hand, we have various circumstances of action arenas in which individuals are interacting, and those individuals interacting are basically holding different preferences, different worldviews, different values, and even if they share some values, they have different interpretations of those values when it comes to social action in specific circumstances. So, therefore, the issue of heterogeneity has to be taken seriously into account, so if you want to understand institutional diversity and if you want to understand governance systems, you have sooner or later to go into the direction of understanding uh, the diversity of values, of human preferences, of lifestyles, and so on and so forth. So it's, in a sense, a requirement of the social reality that we have to deal with. Now, that social reality happens to change very fast under our own eyes. And initially, we're associating those changes with the idea of globalization and an increasing homogenization at the global level. And, and indeed, on some, on, on some aspects, we could see a convergence. But on many other aspects, we see actually divergence and the emergence of new cleavages and more cleavages and more complex cleavages. When well, you add into that mix the technological revolution, which is creating new types of forms of uh, new types of organizational forms, new types of communities, and it's basically creating new cleavages. You realize that actually we need to respond in a much more sophisticated way, in a much more knowledgeable way, to precisely this problem, this problem of heterogeneity, which is exploding under own eyes and it's doing that in uh, ways in which they're undermining the governance structures that uh, we have in place from periods stabilized in equilibrium from relative equilibrium from previous uh, periods in which those challenges were not that big. So are, we have national communities which are were not so heterogeneous in terms of of, of culture, ethnicity, religion, and so on and so uh, forth. So, it is a way to respond to the current challenges. Taking heterogeneity seriously, it's, it's a way to respond to the current challenges. Indeed, and again, I'm going to the indoctrination, and uh, one way of responding to this is let's increase more the propaganda, or maybe under the label of education, something on the similar lines, and try to align and put people more on the same page. Obviously, you need to have some overlapping consensus in order to have a governance system but i think that too much is expected from the gov- from the overlapping consensus of people and this is a huge risk currently i think that we have to consider more seriously alternative governance systems which are not predicated on the idea of a consensus right so we have to minimize our expectations and our design institutional design approaches Regarding the consensus, the idea of consensus or overlapping consensus and the capabilities to, we have to put people on the same page ideologically uh, in order to build on that institutional uh, um, the architecture, the institutional architecture of governance. So this is in a nutshell sure where I'm coming from with this uh, focus on uh, heterogeneity. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm, this is where I'm coming from and I'm going together with partners from uh, both the George Mason University but also University of Pittsburgh in the direction of the idea of modus vivendi governance. Live and let live. So rediscover that actually in order to have a liberal democratic system Uh, One of the prerequisites, one of the foundations is to agree to disagree in a peaceful way, to return back to to the wisdom gained by the initial classical liberals, who after 100 or so years of uh, religious uh, wars in Western Europe, have decided that actually live and let live is the sole way to get out of uh, the vicious cycle of conflict generated by profound divergences of world views, religious views in this, uh, in this case. So this is where I'm coming from with this. This is where I am. And the direction that we, I'm going to is uh, together with uh, um, uh, a number of uh, our colleagues, um, which is the direction of uh, modus vivendi governance systems. And the redefinition of the idea of modus vivendi governance in the new circumstances, technological, global, demographic, cultural of the 21st century.
1: Thus, uh, an emphasis on peaceability in a diverse world, uh, not relying on uh, sort of formal institutions as a as a panacea or a singular solution, but relying upon a range of uh, of virtues, of vivendi, toleration, uh, as as a key for um, better understanding and uh, living better together. I, I think these are uh, a very profound virtues and uh, much commendation for. Uh, the research uh, efforts that you're undergoing in collaboration with GMU and uh, University of Pittsburgh. So the the conventional wisdom, be as it may, suggests that American and other uh, Western societies are increasingly becoming fractured, (laughs) resulting from, let's say, political polarisation and similar instantiations of identity-based groupthink, for example, or even... Uh, tribalistic ethics. So academics and popular commentators have certainly advanced their own proposals to moderate uh, political discourses and activity. Now, in addition to the emphasis on modus vivendi on liberal virtues, do you actually see any value whatsoever in the reinvigoration of certain informal institutions and procedures that might align with classical liberal philosophical commitments? So, for example, federalism or to direct democracy, for example, do you see any value in those measures in helping to negotiate um, some of the perceived tensions of diversity? And, and uh, if so, how? Oh, uh, uh, absolutely. And I think that we have already touched on this issue when
2: we're talking about polycentricity. Polycentricity is a shorthand for talking about governance, institutional solutions to these challenges. And now you mentioned federalism. Federalism is a subspecies or a way of talking about polycentric systems or the other way around if you want to again. We are not getting so much stuck on labels. What we want to understand are the properties of institutional arrangements and their functioning. Um, also, direct democracy. We're talking about uh, the relationship between taxes and the level of taxes are collected and the level where the public goods and services are produced. Obviously, there is another way of saying when you say drug democracy that those should be way, way more tighter connected. So these are institutional principles, institutional designs, governance principles that one has to take into account. And obviously, actually, this is the kind of approach that I'm suggesting. The other approach is the ideological one, which is, I think I'm afraid the one which is dominant currently, which is to 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 simply, consider that everything is a result of fake news of uh, propaganda of manipulation of uh, people preferences that only if we get things right in terms of the news cycle or whatever else uh, uh, we want to label as uh, as the flow of information and their interpretation, things uh, would be uh, uh, solved miraculously. Uh, I think that that is only going to increase these tensions because obviously, as I have mentioned, even if we are sharing the same values... We might have different interpretations about how those values may be operationalizable in a, in a specific circumstance or in a specific uh, public policy. And in the end, we might have different uh, preferences or even different interests. Or our goal here is not to negate the difference of differences of interests between people or groups, but to create governance structures which are going to somehow navigate the tensions created by those uh, differences. So... Here, you have mentioned mainline political economy. The idea of uh, Hayek, for instance, a catalytic order, a order in which people are mostly focusing on the means by which they realize their divergent ends as opposed to their common ends, is very important uh, in this respect. So... There is an ideologically propaganda uh, focused approach and there is a more governance institutional uh, focused approach in which the capabilities of the people are the capabilities of running the institutional infrastructure, the social technology. It's not so much about uh, the capabilities of uh, of a system to generate the truth. It's more about the capability of system of generating good uh, governance.
1: And I can well imagine that the prosecution of this research agenda with a blending of uh, the institutional and governance or prerequisites of living better together in a sort of diverse, uh, free society, combined uh, with uh, sort of ideological and sort of moral commitments, uh, which are sort of neatly encapsulated by modus vivendi and toleration, are going to actually have uh, one can could. Uh, imagine uh, positive benefits in terms of the revitalization of uh, sort of structures within civil society that one could presume that most people value, family, neighborhood, community, Free association. So I, I think there's uh, certainly much uh, promise in this agenda, and we should all uh, sort of look very uh, sort of carefully for future developments uh, in this space. So I'll take this opportunity uh, now for for us to sort of turn to a comparative uh, appraisal, if we could, of civil societal conditions in in history and also in our contextual uh, sort of setting. So for For increasing numbers of people today, Paul, it seems that uh, lived experiences and memories of communism and socialism seem to be fading away, relegated perhaps uh, to the the books of old. Uh, Some might argue that demographic shifts uh, help to explain the ideological partiality towards these kinds of systems of public governance, especially among the young. But this uh, diverts from the crucial point, I think, that people may be forgetting about what living under communism was like. It's much less of a lived experience for uh, many of our uh, so contemporaries. So, drawing upon your own experiences growing up in communist Romania, as well as what you know of other communist regimes, what was the condition of civil society like Romania, Eastern Europe and elsewhere under Soviet influence? What was life like uh, for the the third sector? Well, this is an
2: excellent uh, question because people uh, usually when they're thinking about uh, the socialist uh, uh, experiment, and it was indeed an experiment. It's the largest social experiment in the history of humankind. Never something like this ever happened, and trying to restructure radically, foundationally, the entire uh, entire societies, not only one, but multiple societies. Well, people who are thinking about the economy and about the market economy, and they are well aware of the fact that uh, once you press, you push the... Um, structures of human exchange and cooperation which are associating with the market uh, or the human's propensity to exchange uh, things, to barter, uh, when you are pressing that with the formal institutions and the power of the state, those institutions will be re-emerging in different areas like the black economy or the gray economy or the shadow economy, things like that. Well, in a similar way, things happen with what we call Civil society, those institutions. So you press them with the entire force of the totalitarian state. They do not disappear, but uh, uh, their functions, their structures reemerge somewhere underground or in different shapes or forms, uh, and they try to fulfill the functions uh, in spec- the new specific uh, circumstances. So, this is one of the lessons. That uh, you are drawing from the Soviet socialist experience regarding these uh, structural changes, right? They are very important. As the grey economy or the black economy, uh, the exchange is taking place in the shadow of the socialist state, outside of the formal structure of the economy, were extremely important. In a similar way, these relationships were foundational, fundamental for. for the preservation of the society and of the individual degrees of freedom in uh, so uh, and, and communism and in socialism. Now, uh, the new generations. Obviously, we we won't, it's 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 impossible. Or I mean, it's very difficult to make new generations people which are. um native digitally natives and 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 they're living in those circumstances to relieve or even to maybe to have a certain degree of sympathy to 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 the what is uh, what was happening during kurds so obviously there are atrocious things happening there and that's probably in a sense easier to to make a point about but uh, there are other things which are much more difficult to Make people understand. And the truth be said, we haven't done much effort in order to preserve that historical memory of those experiences. In a sense, Eastern Europe and Russia were a huge, as I have mentioned, social laboratory. We have seen there almost everything that could be seen in terms of experimenting the relationship between institutions, both as incentive systems and knowledge processes and human nature. And I think that at this point, or very fast in the process, people have decided that they are not interested in the insights gained there. And the human costs and the sacrifices in order to get those insights are huge. So it's not just about the public or the new generations not being aware of uh, the nature and the lessons of the communist socialist experiment. But I think even in the scholarly community, in the academic community, for various reasons, we could discuss that why it was the case. But uh, even in the academic community, people decide very fast that they want to forget about uh, that experience. Now, why is that so important today? That is very important today because we are confronted, due to the technological developments, with uh, a situation in which looks like new forms of totalitarian governance structures are becoming increasingly possible due to the technological um, innovation. So a lot of what we consider to be liberating when it comes to information technology and its applications or implications for governance or organizational forms seems to be at least at the same time, if not even more, a source, a potential source of new arrangements, which are based on surveillance and control. We can see that at work in various parts of the world. We could see it both in the West and in the East. We could see how from the same technological core, arrangements both in the economy and in the social life are increasingly possible on the lines which make the totalitarian experiments of the 20th century national socialist communists, to be just sort of uh, very rudimentary right? structures in comparison to the new capabilities given now by the surveillance technology and the, by the control which is coming with the capabilities to survey. Now, we know that political police, intelligence services, in both national socialism and in communism, were crucial for the functioning of the system. Why is that the case? Surveillance. They're able to survey, get the information, get the data on individuals, and so on and so forth. Think of the new capabilities that we have now in this uh, respect. So we have to study the previous totalitarian experiments in order to understand better what is happening. It's in, 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 in the more basic, more rudimentary form so you could see easier. What might be more difficult to see in the very complex, multi layered forms which are emerging under our own eyes as we speak? So, this is the second aspect that I wanted to mention in the context of your question.
1: No, thank thank you very much. I mean, there's certainly uh, discussions, if not implementations in certain parts of the world with respect to uh, so-called social credit systems and central bank digital uh, sort of currencies. These seem to, uh, at least in my reading, to be uh, so new wave technological instantiations of processes that have long been held in play as aptly uh, described, for example, by James uh, C. Scott, his book seemed like a stage where, uh, essentially, there is a fundamental political interest in categorizing uh, the population, making it legible, uh, making so social life yeah. monitorable, and and so I I, I would behove um, you know those scholars and practitioners of civil society to uh, to play. Close regard to these technological sort of developments uh, in the air, and you know, potentially sort of becoming a part of our uh, lives. So, uh, so to close off, uh, Paul, I've um, uh, in previous uh, editions of this mini series, I've asked uh, people a sim- seemingly a, s- a simple question, but which may not well be so. So, I'll repeat the question uh, for you, and that is as follows. How would you define civil society? What does that term mean to you when someone invokes it? Uh, What do you think?
2: Well, you know very well that this is a very tricky question. When you're asking somebody who has been studying from various angles, there are all kinds of definitions are coming to my mind. Some of them are technical, some of them are on the supply side, some of them on the demand side, some of them which are sort of residual of, of, of the definitions of the state and of the market. The other way around, there is a way of defining the market and the state as residuals of the core, social core of the civil society. But if I have to draw a line, I'm in my mind, civil society is associated with the potentialities for freedom. Degrees of freedom, spaces of freedom, spheres of freedom are emerging from the, 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 the multifaceted nature of the and the heterogeneous nature of this civil society with a diversity of institutions, human associations, combinations between interest and voluntary action, and so on and so forth. Again, I, I, I give a definition which is functional, and I associate that functionality with the problem of human freedom.
1: So I, uh, in closing, I wish to sincerely thank you, uh, Paul Alagieca, for your time and crucial insights into the practicality and theory of nonprofit organisation and civil society dynamism. Outlines of his research work are on the Mercatus Centre at George Mason University website, as well as his website at Alagika. A-L-I-G-I-C-A dot com, uh, Paul, thank you once again. Again, many, many
2: thanks. It was a real pleasure and a privilege to be engaging in this conversation with you. Thank you so much.
1: Pleasure. Anytime.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hayek Programme podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Programme, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.